0: I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the law replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits on appointed time. It speaks of the end, and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, and it will certainly come, and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey, because you have plundered so many nations. The peoples, who are left to plunder will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shamming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall, wall will cry out and the beams of woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a house a town by injustice? Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as, the, as waters cover the seas. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by craftsmen, or an image that teaches lies? For one of, for one who makes his trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or the lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. John are you there?
1: Yes that's right I am here yes I'm just waiting for David to bring up uh, uh, my first slide. Um, You may remember that the first verse of Habakkuk 2 is I will stand at my watch, station myself on the ramparts, I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. It's a military an- analogy, which is quite relevant for Remembrance Sunday. Standing on the ramparts, but Habakkuk is one who is standing and looking, and and picturing one who is seeing, and asking God, what. Um, God has to say to us. And I want us to do that as well today as we go through the uh, um, time of worship together. And particularly if we go to the two-minute silence, if God is saying anything to you, please use the chat function uh, to uh, get there. Now I hoped that I would see a different slide than what I have on the screen at the moment. It should be Habakkuk 2-1, etc. Is something going wrong, David?
0: Hello? It may be that his computer's frozen. Oh, here we go. Right. I think it's all right. right.
1: Okay. You go. And now I'll go on to, uh, yeah, thank you. That light, the right slide is on now. And now I'll do a bit of sharing and I'll particularly share the testimony of my own family at war. It's a great privilege that I can do this and one which uh, I will try and use in the best way. And the first photo I have to show you is from the First World War. It's three young men in a hospital in France. On the left is Thomas Dunn, a company sergeant major in the first uh, uh, battalion of Sherwood Foresters. He is one of my great uncles. And on the right, there's another of my great uncles. George Dunn of the 3rd Battalion Grenadier Guards and who gained the Merchant Medal in the First World War through bravery. And in the middle is Herbert Dunn, the youngest one, a corporal in the 8th Battalion of the Leicestershire Regiment. Now that is the last picture we have in our record of the three together. But I have something else to show you which makes you think and realize what war was all about. They all came from the the town of Mickelova, near Derby. And the families of those who'd been killed in the war got a replica of the monument that was put up in Mickelova. And our family was one of those. If we bring up, we can look at the names on that memorial. And you'll find the three names that I mentioned. On the second, on the first column, second one is Tom Dunn. And below him, Herbert Dunn. Then if you look to the right at the top, there's George Dunn. George was killed on the battlefield on the 18th of September, 1916. Herbert on the 15th of July, 1916. And Thomas on the 31st of July in Passchendaele. And you also find there four more people by name of Foster. They were those cousins. Our family suffered a great deal because of the First World War. People who went at the peak of their life to fight in the war and were killed who made the ultimate sacrifice. One was aged 30, one was aged 28, and one was aged 24. We can now move on to the Second World War and a very different person who didn't die in the Second World War. If he had have done, I wouldn't be here. Because that is a picture of Flight Lieutenant Tom Bradley, my father. And in fact, by the end of the war, he was uh, an acting wing commander. He would say he was never brave. And he was the sort of person you didn't disagree with. But in fact, I do disagree with him. He was an electrical engineer, although he was in the RAF. He wasn't a pilot. The one thing that he had to do was following D-Day. He's get the power supplies working in France. And as they moved into Germany as well. And the Germans had a bit of a nasty habit of booby trapping power supplies. So before he could get the power supplies working on an airfield or a town in France, they had to take out the booby trap. And all went well for all every occasion other than one. When he and the person with him realised that something was going badly wrong as they started to uh, work on the booby trap, he just got outside quick enough and had a concrete wall between him and the explosion that occurred. To me, he was a brave man, but he would always say he wasn't. And the reason was that he never wanted to glorify war. To him, war was the most terrible thing that could ever happen. Where we're asking people to kill and where other people, our friends and our colleagues are killed as well. And that's the reason that he felt that way about war and so strongly about war. Something which I've considered ever since. We're now going a bit up, more up to date. I've just got five minutes left. This person you probably met, well, he's been to the Odd Carol service and various things at uh, um, Alton. He's my youngest son, Stephen. And he's sitting in the cockpit of a helicopter. And Jonathan Hughes will be able to tell you what helicopter it is. We won't uh, bother with that at the moment. Stephen is not a pilot, even though he's sitting in a, a seat of, a, of a, a helicopter. He's no traffic controller. And for four months, end of last year and beginning of this year, he was in the Falkland Islands. The Falkland Islands is a recent conflict, relatively speaking insofar as some of us can remember it. And whilst he was there, he visited a particular site. You see up there, it said the Atlantic Conveyor. This was a conveyor ship, which was part of the uh, the Falklands uh, Task Force, manned mainly by Merchant Navy and Royal Fleet auxiliary people. It carried the helicopters, which the idea was would take the troops onto Falkland and take the Falkland Islands. But it was hit by an Exocet missile fired by a superentendard of the Argentinian Air Force. And 12 people perished in that. And that's a reminder, even within current conflicts of war, and of death and of sacrifice. What does God say to us about this sacrifice? What does God say about those who've been killed in the First World War, the Second World War, Korea, Falklands, Afghanistan? And even today, we we think of the deaths in Yemen and places like that. What is God saying to us? I suggest we really ask God what He's saying to us as we go into the two-minute silence, which we're going to in a minute or two. There's a bit of a choice actually. I know that some people want to actually stand at their front door during the two-minute two minute silence, and if you want to do that, that's fine. But if everything works technically, and I must admit I'm crossing a few uh, fingers at the moment, we're, we're going to go in a couple of minutes to the Cenotaph in London to hear the last post, to take part in the two-minute silence with the people of the UK, to hear the Rivali, and then to come back and see more what God has to say to us. And as I say, Use that time to ask as Habakkuk um, also asked, Lord speak to me as I stand on the ramparts. And although it's a couple of minutes before I was going to go over there, I think probably it would be a good idea, David, if we now proceed to the Cenotaph in London.
2: St Vincent and the Grenadines are all here laying leaves on behalf of other members of the Commonwealth. Bridget Patel on the left, the Home Secretary, Norman Fowler, the Lord Speaker, and the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle. of Nepal and Ireland, and then the many representatives of the faith communities. There are, filing behind the balustrade there, there are ten Christian denominations, and in addition to them, Jewish, Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, Baha'i, Jains, Mormons, spiritualists, and humanists. years their number has grown at this ceremony. So it's nearly two minutes now until 11 o'clock and the two minutes silence. So this is the seen this morning are very different from what we're used to. Far apart, everybody's standing. But the politicians led by the prime minister there. Waiting to lay their wreaths, the members of the religious denominations you see standing behind the balustrade. This every effort being made to keep people apart from each other. In a moment the royal party who will be laying wreaths at the Cenotaph will come out onto Whitehall, led by the Prince of Wales, and the Queen will be watching from the balcony. The Prince of Wales comes out first, followed by the Duke of Cambridge, Princess Royal, Majesty the Queen, who watches from the balcony as members of the Royal Family take their place to the north of the Cenotaph. Prince of Wales who will be laying the Queen's wreath on behalf of the whole nation. And so we wait for Big Ben to strike and the two-minute silence. At 11. Post sounded by the Royal Marine buglers and before them you saw the King's troop on horse guards with a gun signal ending the two-minute silence.
1: Well, I don't know whether you found that moving but I certainly did. And, uh, So we moved very quietly and gently into seeing what Habakkuk had to say to us, remembering what's gone before. We've already seen the idea of someone standing at the ramparts, looking at what is happening just as we looked on the scenes at the cenotaph and asking God What do you have to say to us, Lord? Because as Neil mentioned last week, they had a lot to ask God about. They were besieged by the Assyrians, a brutal people. They were victims. And what do you have to say, God, to us who are victims? And we find in verse in chapter two, which was read so well by Toby, and thank you, Toby, so much for that. This verse. Will not all that them taunt him? That's the victims with ridicule and scorn saying, woe to him who piles stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? A common cry of victims. How long must this go on? And something you'll find in Revelation as well, written to a persecuted church, people asking God, how long? And what God is saying to them is that the people who are doing this to you, who are making you victims, I haven't forgotten If if God did not judge those, the victims will be left desolate. And the news is that judgment is something that comes because the victims of injustice in this world are crying out. And that's the situation that Habakkuk was addressing. In some ways, they're bringing judgment on themselves. And the fact that evil was begetting evil and as neil mentioned last week the assyrians were overcome and defeated in battle but by the babylonians who were maybe slightly better but there wasn't much now habakkuk structures the lord's response by going through five particular woes woes that the people were wanting because they wanted to be released from what they were suffering as victims. And the first woe was directed at the exploiters, who were painters being arrogant, drunks, as being greedy and enslaving people and extorting people from money. And, uh, Habakkuk was then saying, there will be a certain amount of revenge, but not the revenge that you do to those who have done this to you. But I will call them to account. And those who suffered bloodshed uh, will suffer themselves. Uh, those who have inflicted bloodshed will suffer themselves. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as exploiters, do we? And yet in recent times, I've actually been thinking about myself. You see, I'm not the sort of person who is really into designer labels. The shops that I tend to shop in for clothes are the Matalans, the Primarks, the Tesco's, the Georges and the Sainsbury's because I hate spending more money than I need to. But there's an arresting in this as well is the cheap clothes that we are buying in this country at the expense of those who are making them in the third world. I have a friend called Rodney and his wife, Anne, who were actually working in Bangladesh a few years ago, trying to ensure that inspections of working conditions were right, which Companies in this country, like Tesco and H&M and Matalan, were acquiring because they were conscious of that, of the exploitation there was. But uh, they said, unfortunately, that some people just uh, bought certificates rather than had proper inspections. And the fact is that our greed in the first world. It's not only responsible for those sort of conditions in the third world. It's also responsible for climate change. And going back to Bangladesh, most of it is totally flat. And therefore, even a small change in uh, uh, sea level due to global warming could have a major effect on those who live there, that more floods are likely happened and more people are likely to lose their lives because of what we consume. The prophets were always careful to say that it ain't just the foreigners who are the problem, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They also pointed into the people of God themselves and saying to them, you need to address your own behavior. Otherwise, the woes that we speak about will come to you as well. The second woe you find in in verse nine of of Habakkuk 2. And I've called them the empire builders. Those who build empires not because of hard work, but because of unjust gain. Wendy and I like going around various places owned by the National Trust and English Heritage. We haven't had much opportunity this summer. Pity, really, but never mind. But there's a lesson in many of those places you go around. Castles on the top of a hill impregnable but we're not standing upon among impregnable castles we're standing among ruins and people built their empires put their trust in those castles on the hill but ultimately those castles many of them were destroyed some by neglect some by war some because they fell into uh, dire financial straits and couldn't keep the places up. The empire builders had found judgment coming upon themselves. And Habakkuk speaks about people's lives being ruined because of uh, because of the empire builders. He talks about the very stones and the roof beams shouting about the injustice that there is in this place. Of course we also see empire builders in an expression that's used at work. And certainly when I was at work, there were people who would said, oh, he or she is an empire builder. In fact, I say he or she, it wasn't only the men. And who built their empires, not just by working hard and doing all these good things but actually making sure that their rivals, as they thought in business, suffered and lost their own empires. I found it significant a few years ago when Alex Ferguson, the manager of Manchester United at the time, was granted a year where donations will be made. I'm trying to remember what the word is, but mind. And he was interviewed about that. You've got loads of money, Alex Ferguson. Why do you need this? He said, oh, I've got to think about my financial security. When I heard that, I thought, what? He has more than a year than I would ever need in a lifetime. What does he mean about financial security? Financial security is not just a matter of being able to eat and drink, but staying in the status and with the standard living that you've been used to. And that was an aspect of empire building. And because of that, people can suffer. The third woe is, uh, is to the violence. It talks about building cities with bloodshed and establishing a, cr- a town by crime. And of course, violence is very much a thing that we thought of today. The violence of war. Near last week, put his hand up and said he was a pacifist, but that he enjoys some violent movies. In fact, I'm the opposite. I don't like violent movies. I will avoid them as much as possible. But I am also the person that believes that sometimes it is necessary to go to war. And that's the reason that I'm proud of my father. I'm proud of those three great uncles. And I'm proud of my own son who served in the armed forces. However, There is an aspect of just war. An aspect of war being the last resort of doing all that we can, of ensuring in war that people who were trying to rescue will actually be better off afterwards than before. Something which debatably has not happened in Iraq. And therefore, let us have this view about conflict. And sometimes, yes, we do ask people to do the very worst thing that we can ever ask a human being to do, and that is to kill another human being. Something which strikes totally at the nature we've been given by God. Sometimes we have to do it. However, Habakkuk was addressing those who were not mounting war reluctantly, but enthusiastically as a means of increasing their empire of exploiting others. Habakkuk says the people's labor is only fuel for the fire. The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. All the strife, all the wars that have been created only fuel for god's fire and is for nothing. The fourth woe is the abusers and speaks about making people drunk to expose their nakedness. Something which we know from our news bulletins unfortunately happens today as well. Also, interesting, mentions our animal cruelty, the Harm that is done to animals as well. So it's abuse of people, it's abuse of animals, it's abuse of God's creation. And the sad thing today is that we don't need to make people drunk in uh, order in order to gaze on their nakedness. There are literally millions of pornographic websites, I understand, on the web. And also, even in churches, there's, there's aspects of domestic abuse and no part of the church is exempt from that. We're talking about Catholics, we're talking about Anglicans, we're talking about Baptists, we're talking about Methodists, we're talking about liberals, we're talking about high church, and we're talking about evangelicals, we're talking about charismatics. No part of the church is exempt from that. And it's something we need to be aware of to ensure that if it occurs, it is stopped because in God's church there should be no abuse occurring of others. And the fifth woe is to the idolaters, and it speaks about the gods we make, particularly the sort of statues and everything like that at that time, but of course. Mondays days, we have our own gods that we make. Those gods may be the god of possessions, always wanting the latest thing, always wanting the most high-tech thing. Idolaters may be people, those who we hero worship. Idolatry may be obsessively seeking the pleasures of this world. Things which in moderation are fine, but when we make it our obsession, they become idols in our sight. And again, we would like to say the church was exempt from that, but it isn't. So that's a bit of a gloomy picture. In fact, it's a very gloomy picture. But in this particular passage, Habakkuk centers on three particular passages. The first is the righteous person who live by his or her faith. He calls us to be righteous. He calls us not just to uh, believe in him, although that's absolutely essential, but to live lives that are pleasing to him. To have a right relationship with him and a right relationship with others as well. And to live by the faith which he has given us, which means we can live that righteous life. And it's not a thing which is impossible. It is a thing which is all too possible. And it's up to us to show our faith in Christ by believing, but also by following his commands. Secondly, Habakkuk says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, it's not just the glory of the Lord through the earth, but the knowledge. Habakkuk is looking to the time when God's glory will be so obvious that the whole of creation will recognize it. He was speaking to a people who were oppressed, who were victims, who were on the wrong side of everything that we've spoken about today. But they and everybody else will be released and everybody would know that God is present. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but God makes sure that this is a prophecy of the end time. And ultimately, God will ensure that all creation will know him. He also says that he is in his holy temple. The temple, as far as the Israelites concerned, was the place where God met man. That man was the high priest on the day of atonement. And I mentioned that last Sunday. But the point was that there was a representative of mankind who met God in the temple. And now his temple is something which exists amongst us. That God is there, but we are present as well. That the temple, which is heaven and earth, are somehow brought together by Christ. And that, again, is something which we can take to, whether we're victims or not, whether we're oppressors or not. If we come to God in prayer, if we come to God in repentance, God will
3: meet with us in our lives. Amen.